Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Kevin Johnson program. This is a re-recording of episode five, and I say re-recording because uh, your friendly neighborhood host, and yes, as a side note, I do believe in transparency. So in this particular sense, we did re-record over this episode. So normally we would record an episode and we would upload it uh, every Wednesday. So if you did not see this on Wednesday, it is because we had to rearrange. And I want to uh, thank the uh, person that I am, uh, that is our special guest tonight for their patience with us as we're <laughs> venturing into this um, podcasting thing. So we try to learn from our mistakes and uh, we move forward. So with me, like I said, is our special guest, and his name is Sky Whitcomb. So welcome to the program once again, Sky. <laughs> Thank you, Kevin. Thank you. I appreciate it. Um, so since I have such a bad memory at my age, I, I had to write down some <laughs> uh, cliff notes from what we went over and uh, now you also have the time more now to be creative in your answers since uh, this is a re-recording. So uh, we'll go back to the beginning. So mm -hmm. as most of you probably know, I am a producer of live performance. My company is called Conundrum Stages. However, before Conundrum Stages materialized, I was a curator of Reader's Theater. And what we would do is we would recruit stage actors and stage directors, and we would put on play readings of classic and contemporary works. And we called this the Ghost Light Series. So over a decade ago, I was participating in the unified auditions for the South Florida Theater League, and there was a couple that I was interested in speaking with, and they came to audition for those uh, for the unified auditions that year. So I had to believe this was back in like what? Do you remember two thousand five, six? Uh, yeah, two thousand five, two thousand six, somewhere around there. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Uh, what I did not realize is after calling this couple uh, that they were still in a different state at the time. Yep. They were in Savannah, Georgia. So they just commuted to come down to kind of get a lay of the land. And uh, that was my faux pas. So a year later, uh, they came back again when I was uh, auditioning for another reading. We were doing Death of a Salesman by Arthur Miller, and uh, they came through the door, and I was like, well, I remember you from last year. You, you, I didn't realize that you guys uh, were, um, that you were based out of this, this place, and now you've uh, uh, relocated long-term. So I figure you, you could finish the story from there. <laughs> well, it, it was pretty straightforward. We had, uh, we had decided to... Uh, leave Savannah. Uh, my wife had finished off her, her MFA at SCAD, the Savannah College of Art and Design, and so we had been looking at different different places around the country where we wanted to, to move to. And as you said, we'd come down for the Unifieds to see what theaters were here, to see if 
uh, there was any interest in, in what we had to offer, uh, that sort of thing. And, uh, and then when we came back, uh, we'd already moved. Uh, we had moved down here uh, over the summer. And then I, I ran into you at the, uh, the auditions for the reading of Death of a Salesman and ended up uh, playing Happy, which was a, a very different role than I was used to playing. But that's, mm-hmm. uh, that's okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, you always got to like expand and test the waters and, and right. uh, try to stretch stretch types and things like that so um so that was uh that was uh good and from there uh you kind of uh planted your uh made your presence known on the scene so you had uh uh you had a few uh stage credits under your belt uh performing with uh different uh companies uh do arranging works from neil simon to william shakespeare and right, uh, right. and uh, you know we'll talk about your uh, experiences as an actor here on the scene, but also from starting from when you were on the boards, you also uh, participated behind the boards as well, and then also right. uh, joined uh, a couple of or uh, a theater company doing their uh, managing budgeting work. And then also, of course, uh, forming a company of your own. So right. how does one, I guess, just to go off track a little bit, the South Florida Theater League, which was known then as the Theater League of South Florida, right. uh, they do these uh, unified auditions, which they have uh, many theater companies, many theater factions come out for one day and do a cattle call audition. So there's representatives from different theater companies that would sit in and watch these actors and they would uh, call them back or the ideal thing would to call would be to call them back for roles for the upcoming season. So participating in the unified audition as an actor and then also participating in the unified audition as a producer, did you feel the difference between that? Oh, most certainly, most certainly. And and there's also um, the unified auditions uh, are not uh, the unified auditions are not really what a lot of actors, uh, especially newer actors, assume that they are. Uh, very, very few producers actually cast out of the unifieds. Uh, generally, what will happen, a producer likes an actor. Uh, they will contact that actor and say, hey, I'd like you to come to my auditions, and which is kind of a silly thing to say because they were probably planning on coming to your auditions anyway. Mm-hmm. So the, the entire idea of just like, oh, come to my audition really doesn't mean anything. Uh, you've got a couple theaters that will invite to callbacks uh, based off of uh, someone's performance at the Unified, uh, but not many, not many. Uh, as a producer, really what it, it was for me was a, an opportunity to see actors that I would not have normally seen. Uh, there are 
actors that for whatever reason I wouldn't see at our season auditions or I hadn't seen in a show and I wanted to be able to see them and to see what it was that they had to offer. And as I said before, uh, often I would take those actors and I'd add them to my, my database and then if there was something that was coming up I felt that they would be right for, I would invite them to come to the callbacks for that particular show. So to kind of bounce around on the timeline a little bit, so going back to when you came on the scene as an actor, what was your first play, at, what was your first production? Well, my first production uh, when I got down here was for a tiny little uh, community theater out in Tamarack uh, that is sadly defunct. It, it was the Tamarack Theater of Performing Arts. And, uh, and it was a, a Neil Simon play, which, you know, God help me, but that's, uh, it, it, it was a fun What do you got against Neil theater. Simon, man? What do you got against Neil Simon? <laughs> I don't have anything against Neil Simon. It's, it's not particularly my style of theater. And, you know, it, it, for the people who enjoy it, that's wonderful. I'm glad that, that he exists. I'm glad that he's influenced the way that he has. But it, it's not my style. It's not my deal. But it was a fun show to do. Um, it was uh, Lost in Yonkers. Uh, I played Uncle Louie. And, uh, and it was a, a fun introduction to things. You see, when we came down from Savannah, uh, Savannah did not have what people in South Florida would consider to be professional theater. Uh, you had the, the university, which put on tremendously good works. But uh, you didn't have any theaters that paid anything. I mean, not even a stipend. Mm -hmm. And so when you went to see community theater, what you were seeing was the best that the town had to offer. Right. And so the, that divide, that difference that we see down here between oh, that's a community theater, and oh, that's a professional theater, didn't exist. Mm -hmm. And so when we moved down here, that it took us some time to get used to that mindset. Right. Uh, and even still, I think that it's a, a, a bit annoying. Because let's be frank, if you want to do a show, do the show. Right. It shouldn't matter. Uh, the, the difference between someone who's paying you a stipend of 50 bucks a week and someone who isn't even able to do that, I mean, really, what is the difference? Mm -hmm. Do you want to do the show or not? And there is a whole lot uh, down here of, of folks that feel if they do not receive some sort of monetary compensation, that they're not going to do the show. doesn't matter if it's a bucket list role. doesn't matter if it's a show that they, they've been dying to do. They won't do the show. But isn't that like a sense of entitlement for any type of market, any type of performer market where people, uh, I guess they get to a point where they no longer feel like they need to be in the ensemble to prove something. However, once again, you are offering them a role of, the, of a lifetime, but you have this this uh, balance in where you want that role of a lifetime. However, you have to be compensated for it. So right. I, I think that 
what you see, uh, and, and let me back up a little bit because I want to clarify here. I am not saying at all that artists do not deserve to be compensated for their work. Mm-hmm. But, but please don't don't take that as my meaning. Right. Uh, every artist has the the right to be compensated. Uh, every every artist should strive to be compensated. But at the end of the day, who are you creating for? Why are you doing it? Mm-hmm. Are you doing it to create the art? Or are you doing it to put a particular notch on your resume, uh, to be able to say, I've worked with this theater, or I got paid 50 bucks a week or 100 bucks a week for seven weeks to do the show. The, the, that the flip side of that is that it can also artists can also be abused so easily by the producers right. when it comes to theater. Yeah. Uh, I was speaking with a, a, another actor uh, very recently, at, uh, and this particular actor was pointing out a, a, a particular community theater uh, that uh, does not pay their actors, and uh, and, and was commenting how. That was a little infuriating because this actor and I both know that were we to look at the books of this community theater, they could afford to pay their actors. Mm-hmm. They could. Mm-hmm. But they have chosen not to. Right. And so I see the flip side of that, that there are going to be theaters who can afford to compensate their talent but decide not to. Uh, and then you've got other theaters that can barely afford to compensate their talent and will do everything that they can to compensate their talent. And then you have other theaters that have, you know, lots and lots and lots of money uh, and will be able to compensate their, their talent on a livable wage, which is indeed rare. Right, right, right. So as an actor, when you were – or you know, still uh, trotting the boards, as they say. Uh, Let me backtrack now. There seems to be now coming to the limelight uh, things in reference to the backstage coming um, downstage. And what I mean by that is that, like, uh, a couple of years ago, there was this article in Chicago talking about a gentleman who ran a theater and he was also an actor. And there was a lot of um, incidents regarding uh, attacking actors, abusing actors uh, on stage and off stage. And there was a major article about it in uh, article about it in the newspaper, which created this um, movement within the Chicago theater scene, which really prepared, yes, which uh, kind of like uh, spiraled down and caused this demise of the theater. So, right, right. So fast forward uh, a couple of years later, there was another incident that was squarely here in this community, in this area here, mm-hmm. where, of course, uh, there was an incident. The thing about that is that it was kept in-house. 
There was no major articles about this. Oh, it yeah. seemed to oh, yeah. it seemed to have uh, kind of resolved itself and you're not seeing me right now, but I'm using air quotes. Resolved <laughs> itself on its own. So oh, no, there was nothing resolved. There was nothing resolved at all. You had uh, I understand, but my, my the thing is is that I wanted to get your take on um, your have you ever ran into a situation? What was your worst experience as an actor, regardless of where you were? Um, and you know, what became the triggering point that you know, for the next time around, you'd never wanted to put yourself in that position again? anything in terms of like with profiles where you're, you're talking about egregious sexual and physical abuse uh, or anything like uh, some of the, the things that have occurred down here uh, as you were speaking of with uh, putting actors in physical danger uh, or against sexual harassment uh, for, for another incident but uh, what I have had uh, and I'm sure that many of the actors down uh, have had and, and everywhere is emotional abuse at right. the hands of a director or right. a producer. Of course. And uh, you know when you hear these stories, I talk with these actors, uh, and they tell me stories about, oh yeah, when I was working for for this particular director, I uh, would s- scream at us or she, or she would cuss us out and then threaten us and all these. Other. I'm like, why the hell are you still working for these people? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, well, they pay well. Okay, that, that's, that's issue number one. If you're going to work for somebody who's abusive because they pay well, there's a, a tremendous problem with that. Or because the particular theater or theaters that, that they're, they're referring to happen to have a lot of clout mm-hmm. or happen to be uh, very uh, popular, I guess, for lack of a better term, although that sounds so high school. Yeah, uh, and so they're they're like they're willing to put up with it, so that they can say, "I worked with this director, or I worked with this company, or I worked on this show." They're willing to put up with that sort of thing. And I, I had this one experience. Um, this is long gone. Uh, again, not long after I got down here, and, and when you first get into a market, you don't know anything about the theaters. You don't know. Uh, the the rumors you don't know the past uh, of a lot of these people. So I was working for a, a theater that is thankfully uh, now defunct. Um, and to be honest, I don't even remember the name of the theater. The guy who ran it was named Jim Tomney. Right. And uh, this man was insane. Uh, that's really all that I can say. He was at least when I worked with him, he was. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had a I was doing a show with two other actors it was a three person show that he had written which should have set off alarm bells to begin with <laughs> but uh, all the way through the the process uh, he was when he paid attention at all because half the time he'd go like shuffling off and, and not be paying attention to what we were doing but when he was paying attention he was derisive and he was insulting and and it came to a head this one night. It was Tech Week, if I remember correctly, or the week before Tech Week. And, you know, as an actor, when there are times when you put on a show 
and you get off that stage and you know you nailed it. You you can feel it. You know that everything was right with that particular performance. And so we had done this full run and it had gone so well. Yeah. And we came off that stage and we sat down on the apron to get our notes and and this director comes walking up to us, stops in front of us and goes, Well that was shit. Hmm. And the actor next to me stands up and goes, fuck you, and walks <laughs> out of the parking lot. And uh, myself and the, and the other actor, we looked at each other and we're like, okay, and we followed him out of the parking lot. And the director fo- followed all three of us out into the parking lot. He was like, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have said that. But, you know, I bit just the tension and on and on and on and, and got us to come back and, and do the show. But it was at that point, and, and I'm so glad that that particular actor did that. Mm-hmm. That actor did what so many actors won't. Right. Which is when you are being abused emotionally and verbally by a director or a producer, that your response to that is not to look down and then later on in the night have a few drinks with your fellow actors and bitch about it. Your response is to look that motherfucker in the eye and say, fuck you, and walk. Hmm. And you think that with everything that's going on with these movements, you would think that the local communities would be influenced by, you know, things of that nature. However, there's still a lot of silence. There's still a lot of radio silence. It's tremendous. There's a whole lot of uh, good for me, but not for the kind of attitude. Uh, there are particular egregious offenses that one group of people will, will commit and everyone will crucify them for it. And then another group of people will do almost the exact same thing, but you won't hear anything about it. Right. Or if you hear anything, it'll be excuses. Yeah. Yeah. And so you do have the, this element of insider-outsider uh, who is, has connections, who is uh, well-known or perceived to be powerful. Uh, and so there, there is. There's a lot of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, are there people who call out the abuses? Certainly. Certainly. But not nearly enough. Right. Right. So with your experience as an actor in this particular scene, and I know that this is like one of the things that uh, we spoke about before, but what was the uh, triggering point for starting the Outre Theater Company? Oh, well, Outre came uh, actually out of another performance at uh, another theater, uh, Main Street Players, uh, which at the time was a community theater, uh, they had asked me to direct Extremities for mm-hmm. them, William Master Simone. Right. And, uh, and I was directing that show, and my stage manager was uh, a woman named Nori Tikoski. And during the course of the rehearsal process, uh, during our breaks and, and before and after rehearsals, we would do a lot of talking about what kind of theater we wished there was in South Florida. And at 
after so much of a conversation about this, there was finally one day where we sort of looked at each other and said, well, let's quit bitching about it and let's do it. Let's mm-hmm. see, let's, let's stop waiting for somebody else to do it. Let's do it ourselves. Let's take, and we made an agreement that we were going to try this for, for two years. And we would see how it worked. And if at the end of the two years it wasn't working, we'd shake hands, we'd go our separate ways, it wouldn't be a big deal. If it was working, then we would continue on with it. Uh, and that was where Utrecht was born. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. And um, from there, you filled out paperwork, everyone knew their duties, and what was your first, um, what was your first project? Not your first, like, full-on presentation, but how did you start? Right, right, and that's actually a, a really good way of putting it, because uh, when we started, and, uh, and and let me go ahead and give credit where credit is due, uh, Sabrina Gore uh, was also there from the beginning. Uh, Sabrina was the lead in our production of Extremities and was involved in our discussions. Now, she didn't come on board as a, a full part of Outre uh, until uh, a little more than a year later. But, uh, but anyway, so Nori and I decided when we started that we were going to take a year where we were just going to do staged readings and concert productions and sort of feel out the community, feel out, is there an audience for this? Uh, what kind of support or lack of support are we going to get from the other theater companies? Um, is this a viable thing for us to do? And, uh, and so we put up our the first reading that we put up uh, was Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead uh, by Tom Stoppard. And, uh, and we put that up as a reading in uh, at New Theater mm-hmm. uh, in their, their old stomping grounds down on Laguna. In Coral Gables. Right, right. And we, and we took that year, we did, uh, we did that, we did Barry Child. Uh, we did a, a concert production of Tick, Tick, Boom by Jonathan Larson. Uh, which we later converted, I guess, uh, for lack of a better term, into the full stage production during our first full season. Now, how did you create the buzz for these presentations, for these small presentations? How did you how did you get get how did you how did you get the people to you know learn about these um, these presentations and learn about Outre? I think that a lot of it, uh, at least at the beginning, was was just word of mouth. That's really all that it was. We did our best uh, with putting things on community calendars and social media and that sort of thing. But uh, a lot of it at the beginning was just the people who were working on it, uh, as well uh, as Nori and I ourselves, just telling other people about it and saying, hey, come out and do this. And to be frank, there was a whole lot of support from the theater community, uh, a lot of the theater community coming out to support those performances, to support those readings and, and those concerts. Uh, at that time, I don't know if you remember this or not, a lot of big theaters had fallen recently. Right. Florida Stage had shut down. Caldwell had right. shut down. Uh, there were a lot of a lot of big theaters that were going under 
Coconut Grove Playhouse, yes. Coconut Grove Playhouse had gone under a few years earlier. There, and so there was this sense, I think, in the, the theater community of, oh my God, are, is, what's going to happen now? Because remember as well, we're talking about 2008, 2009. This is the financial crisis, the, the meltdown of the banks. Right. Uh, all sorts of grant monies and donations had dried up. And so theaters that, that were reliant upon that, like Florida Stage, like Caldwell, suddenly found themselves without that cash flow. Um, and so you had a bunch of small companies that all popped up within the, that two or three year time span. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of which are still around, most of which popped up, put on a couple shows, and then died back down again. Right. Um, but it, it was a, a, I think it was a, a, a testing of the waters. Because when you look at those theaters that popped up during that time period and then showed sustainability, that showed long-term production, uh, long-term uh, staying power, uh, it said a lot. Uh, the ones that I can think of uh, are all Broward-based. Mm-hmm. You've got Thinking Gap, which puts on some incredibly provoking work, uh, very, very powerful work, and, uh, and puts spins on other, on, on classical works like the, the Afra Bain uh, and the Shakespeare's that she's done. Uh, then you had uh, Slowburn, which started off doing uh, lesser known and more provocative musicals like Rocky Horror, like Parade, like Bat Boy, uh, like Blood Brothers. And so when you look at those companies from that time period that stayed around, a lot of them tended towards that uh, more offbeat, more off-kilter, more, I hate the word, edgy, uh, Alternative, non-mainstream, right. non-mainstream work. Right, right. And the, uh, the thing is, is that you want to appeal to the mainstream. However, you also want to um, appeal to what you as an artist want to do. Uh, there yeah. was an artistic director one time to, uh, that uh, always gave me this advice. Whenever you create something, you set the tone. Uh, you find something that appeals to you and hope that if it appeals to you, it'll appeal to someone else that shares your ideals, shares your philosophies. Right. So with these companies that you aforementioned uh, and yourself, like for instance, the first show, the first musical that you did was The Wild Party by Andrew Lippa. And from what I hear, there's two different versions of that that musical, right? Yes, yes. Uh, You've got uh, two, and they're very different in their their feel. Uh, Lippa's version is more uh, what we think of as as traditional musical theater. Now, granted, it, it was not uh, 
it wasn't Rodgers and Hammerstein by any stretch or Kander and Ab or anything like that. Right. But it was, uh, it had more of a traditional sound to it. Uh, the other version uh, was by Lechuza. And, uh, and his version had more of a true jazz feel to it. Mm-hmm. But that also means that it was more dissonant. Mm-hmm. And not a, as ear pleasing. Okay. Although the you know the both of them the of course the books are taken uh, from the same poem, right? From the, the Joseph March poem, so the narrative is the same, but the the feel and the sound is very very different. Now you did the Wild Party. You did that at the Meisner Park Cultural Center, correct? Right. right. That was our first home. Okay. Okay. And since then, you have um, had this uh, vagabond spirit going from <laughs> venue to venue. And that yeah, is actually yeah, representing you uh, as well, because, of course, your journeys have been nomadic. Um, and, and that is very true. I, hadn't, I never really thought of it that way, but that, that is very true. I've, mm-hmm. uh, I've moved around a lot during my life, and, and Ushre has, uh, Bill Hirschman actually, mentioned it uh, when he was doing a, a preview article uh, at the beginning of last season that I, I don't remember exactly how he phrased it, but I know that he used the word nomadic, uh, that we were a nomadic troop, and uh, and pointed out that we seem to be changing venues every year or two, uh, which is absolutely true. Side uh, note, uh, Bill Hirschman. Uh, yeah. Not. Right. Side note. Side note. Uh, Bill Hirschman is the editor in chief and head writer for the Florida Theater on Stage website. So just for those who are just turning tuning in, uh, for 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 them to to know, and then also just to kind of backtrack, uh, Jim Tomini created the Edge Theater. Edge Theater. Edge Edge Theater. Um. Speaking of which, uh, in reference to vanity projects, that's something that uh, we'll try to uh, talk about uh, somewhere down the line. So remind me about that later on. But um, so the Wild Party was your first musical. And how was the turnout for that? It was okay. It wasn't fantastic. Uh, We had uh, definitely not enough to to pay the bills. Um, But it was a, a... good start uh there were issues with it uh we were attempting to put on a monumental sized musical it had an immense cast and an immense band and uh our set was designed by sean mcclellan who is brilliant and creates these massive sets and so we, we it was an endeavor one of the higher-profiled uh, scenic designers in the uh, market, Sean McClellan. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. And national, uh, not just in South Florida. Right. Uh, he is fantastic. And so it, we put on this immense show, which had the added benefit of all of the lessons that we would have normally learned over the course of like four or five shows. We learned them all at once. Mm-hmm. on what to do and what not to do. And, uh, and that helped in a lot of ways as we moved forward. Um, there were still, you know, 
lots of issues, uh, lots of things for us to learn on our journey to, to where we are now. But, uh, but that was a, it was, it was a fun time for the most part. Mm-hmm. And the end product was beautiful. So, of course, this was um, seven years ago, correct? Yes. Seven years ago. Mm-hmm. So, in those seven years, uh, the body of work that Outre has correct created, being that the Wild Party was the first full-on production that you did, what was the production that people said, Outre has arrived. Tick, tick, boom. Tick, tick, boom. Okay. That season. Okay. The, uh, that was, we won a Silver Palm for Best New Theater. Uh, Mike Westrich, who played the lead, uh, won a Silver Palm Award for Best New Talent. It was that show with Mike Westrich and Jarrell Brown and Sabrina Gore that really made people stand up and pay attention. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, this was both the uh, critical and audience-wise. Uh, we packed the houses. Um, the show that we had done in between Wild Party and Tick, Tick, Boom was a one-man show uh, with Avi Hoffman called An Iliad. Okay. And it was a beautiful, beautiful, haunting retelling of the story of the Trojan War. And it had been uh, very well received in Chicago and in New York. And it absolutely bombed at the box office here. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely bombed. It was... Uh, as I think one of the critics of the time put it, the best show that nobody saw. Right, right. The critics loved it. Everyone who came out to see it adored it. Avi Hoffman was brilliant in this role. And nobody came to see the show. There was a post. Uh, it's it, probably... Oh, go ahead. Sorry. No, what were you going to say? Go ahead. No, there was a post uh, that... Um, I believe he did a few years ago around this uh, that he felt some type of uh, we we use the term feel some type of way where uh, he there there seemed to have been a um, you know of course you can't get you you want to be uh, emotionally involved however you can't you, you have to detach. And it seemed that he was not necessarily to, um, not necessarily to, I'm trying to find a word. He wasn't necessarily too happy about the, his um, colleagues not yeah. seeing him. So I know oh, yeah. that he saw, a, uh, he did a, a, a post, I'm sure it's now gone, but he did a post in reference to saying, I now know where people's priorities lie. And he's a staple in the theater community, in the South Florida theater community, as well as the national theater community. And it exactly. seemed like he felt ty- some type of way that, you know, his 
peeps weren't coming out to see him. So, so, uh, you know, how do you, how do you get over that as, as an actor? Uh, how do you, how do you address that? Well, it's not just as an actor, it's also as a producer. You know, it, those of us who are artists, we do, we pour ourselves into what we do and we want those who we love to come and see what we've done, whether that's uh, a gallery showing or a symphony or a performance. We want those who we love, and especially those who are in the same art that we are, who we have gone and supported, we want them to come and see what we do. Mm-hmm. And when you have people who don't, for whatever reason, uh, it's immensely frustrating. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are there are particular theaters that I, I let me rephrase. There are particular actors who I know won't go to see particular shows at particular theaters, or who won't go to see a show if it has a particular actor in it because they've just it's. To them, it's a tit-for-tat kind of thing. You didn't come to see my show, so why should I go and see your show? Right, right. And when you have this attitude uh, of... uh, It eats away at the the trust that we need to have as artists together. Mm -hmm. Um, As a producer, if I've got producers come up to me and go, oh, I hear you're doing a fantastic job, and this is... I hear that, that this particular show was great. I My hear being the operative phrase. I hear. Right. But you haven't I seen. Heard. Right. You were not there. So why exactly weren't you there? It's not as if you couldn't have been. Right. You, you decided not to. Mm-hmm. And that's okay. Mm-hmm. What we do is definitely not for everybody. Right. But if you decide not to come and see my shows, don't be surprised if I don't come see your shows. And the other way around. If I don't come to see your shows, and I, God knows I, I try to see as much as I can, if I don't come to see your shows, I have no right to expect you to come to see mine. Of course not. Of course not. Um, now, one of the things that we uh, were aforementioned as well is the... Um, moving around that you've done started at the mall, uh, the Meisner cultural, the Meisner Park Cultural Center started there. Right. And then you moved into your highest profile venue, uh, working with the Broward Center for the Performing Arts. Right. Now, at that same time or around the same time, there was another tenant that came in as well, which was the Slow Burn Theater Company. And they uh, decided, well, the Broward Center decided to invest their money into working with Slow Burn to appeal to mainstream audiences, as opposed to, of course, yourself, who was a tenant who was renting out space at a um, negotiated cost. But eventually... Eventually, you had to uh, come to a point where you had to move on because, of course, 
And I apologize that I'm I'm line reading here, so you have to excuse me for that. <laughs> but go ahead, you can so you, you can clarify or. Yeah. So we, we we had been invited uh, to to perform at the Broward Center uh, at about the same time that that Slowburn was as well. We were both performing up in Boca at that time. Us over at the Meisner Park Cultural Arts Center. Uh, they at the uh, West Boca High School. Right. Um, and the, it was never, uh, it was never hidden that what was going to happen was we were going to be there, Trey was going to be there as a, uh, as a tenant, as a lessee. Uh, they gave us a wonderful rate, uh, for which we are, are forever grateful. Uh, Shelly Bradshaw was amazing and worked so much with us. Uh, but at the same time, Slowburn was being brought down to be a, a, a co-production mm-hmm. uh, that the Broward Center would co-produce with them. And they do. They have uh, more of a, a, shall we say, more of a crowd appeal uh, than we do. We're, uh, the type of shows that we do, as I said, we're, we're not for everybody. And that's right. okay. Right. Uh, but that was where uh, the Broward Center decided to, to go completely understandable decision it and then after after two years there uh we had gotten to the point where the costs of performing there at, at performing even with the the steeply discounted rates that they were giving to us that it had just gotten to a point where we really could not afford to be there we weren't bringing in enough money to cover the expenditures mm-hmm. and that's really been the, the story of our, our travels here uh, it has been about money um, not long ago I was having a conversation uh, with Crystal Valdez uh, who works with New City Players uh, she was one of the new kids on the block and, yeah yeah and they do wonderful work but they're uh, she was in a production of ours and we were sitting around backstage and we were talking about the, the things that face a smaller theater company, especially a theater company uh, like Outre and like New City, that really doesn't have much of a desire to become the big theater. Uh, we, we like where we are, or we like the size of what we do. And um, the, when we were talking about all the, as we were talking about earlier, the small theaters that will pop up and then put on a few shows and then die again. And something that Crystal pointed out, and I completely agree with her, she said it's a lack of venue. There aren't many venues down here. Mm-hmm. And those venues that are down here, most of them are not designed really to be theater venues. They are designed to make money, which means that they're going to focus more on one-night events and business conferences and uh, wedding receptions and these these events that will bring in a good deal of money in a short amount of time. Right. Unlike a theater production, which spreads over four weeks, three, four weeks, uh, and is not bring is taking up a lot of time but not bringing in as much money. And so when your focus is on making your money, 
theater is not renting a, a space to a theater company. It, it's not a, exactly a winning proposition. Of course. So what Crystal and I were talking about is that the fact that there really is no theater venue for these smaller companies mm-hmm. to perform at, to call their home, to build their audience, to make sure that, that they their impact is felt before the the rent is raised or there's just not enough money to cover bills anymore or whatever and they have to, to leave whatever venue whether we're talking about the Meisner Park Cultural Arts Center or we're talking about wherever. Right. Right. But um going back to appealing to audiences it seems that when you were mentioning um, Slow Burn and Thinking Cap, with Slow, with Slow Burn, yes, they started out doing offbeat uh, alternative musicals, but then when they moved into the Broward Center and the Broward Center invested their time and their resources into um, Slow Burn, um, and it seems that their uh, material has changed. Oh, definitely. While, I mean, anybody and, can see it. Right. And now that particular uh, mission or that particular journey has been compromised to go towards the mainstream um, market as opposed to you where you have moved from venue to venue, but you still kept the modus operandi of doing oh, uh, alternative, uh, offbeat, um, avant-garde works. And then you yeah. also have Thinking Cap that has their own space, mm-hmm. which everybody would love to have their own space. That would be the ideal thing. So then that way, no one can come in and tell you, tell this entity what they can and cannot do because they now have their own domain. Right. So, and you know, I'm not going to to pretend to be privy to whatever discussions were, were hashed out, uh, between Slipburn and the Broward center. Mm -hmm. Uh, I have no idea Mm -hmm. and would not even pretend to, uh, but at some point, uh, the, the, the focus changed the shows changed Mm -hmm. and you can call that whatever you would like, but to go from, uh, to go from doing parade to doing Disney musicals is a big step. It's not the same thing. Right. And, uh, so there, there has been a shift in their focus that everyone has noticed. Uh, I don't know, uh, again, because I, I don't have any sort of, of insight into uh, Patrick or, or Matthew's uh, thinking or, or how they're feeling about what all has happened. Um, but uh, you have to, to watch this and, and and hope that it's not hurting their heart. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. When you see the, the challenging work, uh, you know, Parade was one of my favorites. Uh, the Tooth of the Spider Woman. Uh, when you remember those works, and uh, and then you you look at 
works that that are not not nearly as thought provoking mm-hmm. as what they used to put on. Right. Hmm. Which segues into vanity projects, where yeah. of course you're an actor first and foremost. Mm-hmm. You created this theater company to produce. However, you did not star in your first show. You directed the show, but you did not star in the first show. So, or the second, or the third. Or, <laughs> <laughs> However, um, you do have companies here who. Mm-hmm. They have these individuals who will write, produce, direct, and star in their own productions. Now, some of them, some of them, some of them are, do, I mean, some of them, do they have, it's, it's like, do you have the, do you have the skills to back up your mouth? You might say. And then others not so much. So absolutely. So where do you where do you fall in reference to these uh, projects that these vehicles you might say? Yeah, and vehicle is a good word for it. Uh, you know, to be perfectly frank, if you've got the money and you want to put on a show and, and do everything yourself, you know, good for you, bully for you. Go ahead and do it. Uh, and as you said, sometimes it works out extremely well. Uh, the the example that I'm thinking of is Naked Stage with the Amadeos who, who are now living in Colorado. Antonio uh, and Catherine, yes. Right. Uh, Antonio and Katie started this company uh, as a mean, I shouldn't say that this is not the only reason, but at least partially it was started to, to help give Katie a, a to give her a platform to say, look, this is what she can do. And it worked out extremely well. They put on tremendously good work. Uh, Margaret Ledford, who is one of the best directors in South Florida, uh, directed for them often. Uh, they, just, they put on great, great work. And so in that case, it's something that worked out very well. Uh, and then she said, you know, there are others that she look at and go, no, no, you probably shouldn't have done that. Mm-hmm. But uh, my own views on vanity projects are as long as you're upfront about it, mm-hmm. as long as you own it, mm-hmm. uh, you know, don't say the, these roles are available and then they're not available because you've already cast yourself or your roommate or your son or whoever in that role. Don't. Own it. Right. There's nothing wrong with it. Nobody's going to look down. Well, okay, I shouldn't say that. There might be some people who look down on you. <laughs> care. It's your show. Do your show. That's all right. If you have the chops to handle it, do your show. Uh, when Sabrina Gore was our managing director, uh, and again, we were very upfront about this, uh, there would be particular roles in particular shows that we would be planning on doing. And and Sabrina would say, I want that role. And if she was capable of handling the role, the role was hers. And we were very upfront about it. It was her pay, for lack of a better term, 
for all of the time and money and everything else that she put into the theater company, which she was taking out of it was, I can play this role, I can play this role well, and so I am going to play this role. Mm-hmm. And again, the, the fact that at no point did we ever say that it, that role was available. Mm-hmm. At no point did we ever have people come in and audition for that role while knowing that that role was going to somebody else. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the major difference. And you'll get this bullshit. People will be like, oh, well, you know, we're just looking to see maybe somebody else will come in who's even better. No, that's crap. You know it's crap. Don't say it. <laughs> you know that you are going to cast this person. Right. Go ahead and say that. Right. Go ahead and say that you're not casting anybody else for that role. And if you do happen to see somebody in there who's better, then you can offer them the role. But don't get people's hopes up like that. Yeah. That's just an asshole move. Speaking of leading ladies, you have a leading lady of your own that you have been uh, attached to for uh, the many uh, 17 years. And she also is an actor on the scene. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I wonder when you had those intimate moments where, you know, Jennifer would say, I want that role. Um, how do you like, how do you go? How do you get how do you, you know, pull, you know, the, the collar <laughs> away from your neck and uh, say, well, honey. So just to move away from one tense uh, landmine into another tense landmine. Um, And please forgive me for line reading again, but there was a certain situation where you were going to put on this production and you had it cast 
you had it announced. And then all of a sudden, something happened. And then you had to basically um, pull away from that and do something less um, or something a little bit more um, stripped, you might say, or not even stripped. That's the wrong word. Something um, less than, and I'm not talking about quality. I'm talking about less than what you were going to do. I guess the scale was lower. So um, you, you, you got to be more specific because that's happened way too often. <laughs> okay. Okay. All right. So here I go. Line read. You were going to do the Three Penny Opera at one point. Oh yeah. And uh, you were going to yeah. do that. Um, you know that was going to happen. Yeah. And then uh, you had it cast. You had it announced and everything. Mm-hmm. And then. Um, the situation had to change because of uh, financial reasons. And you oh, had yeah. to end yeah, up well, doing uh, another production where you went from over 10, 15 with your cast down to three. So, yeah. you know, those, yes, you, you're, yeah. you're right. Those things do happen and they do happen uh, occasionally. So what is like the inner workings in reference to something like that? Well, uh, and to give a, a little more insight into the way that a nonprofit theater works as well, is I had gotten all of this approved by my board of directors. And, and part of the job, not the entire job, but part of the job of my board of directors is to make sure that the money exists to put on the shows that they approve and um, the whether that's through fundraising or donations or galas and and now we have a very very active board and a very supportive board uh, if you've ever been to, to one of our uh, dessert and wine receptions that we do uh, after uh, opening Saturday of, of all of our, our productions now uh, you'll see my board is very, very involved. But at the time, we had a board that was board and lip service only. They would meet, they would drink, they would tell us that we needed to do our jobs better, and that was it. Mm-hmm. And it was it was immensely frustrating. But when it came to, to Three Penny, everything had been approved. And... Uh, and for those of you guys, those of the folks who are listening here don't already know this, there are particular costs that you have uh, when you're putting on a show that, that are upfront that you must pay these before you can even get started. Uh, things like your rights, uh, things like your equity bonds, uh, things like uh, deposits on venues, deposits on space, your initial... Uh, outlay of money for set materials and costume materials and all these other things that you have to have before you can even get started. And when we looked at the amount of money that we needed to get started and went to our board and our board essentially said, oh, well, it sucks to be you. Hmm. There was it was one of the most humiliating and frustrating things I've ever had to do as a producer. So basically, 
you had this plan and then you uh, approached the board with it and then they were like, um, we ain't got no money. Sorry. Right. And um, and it was one of the, those moments where uh, Sabrina uh, Gore, who was my managing director at the time, and I looked down at the numbers and she said, we can't do this. We can't. It's impossible. We cannot do this. So she was absolutely right. So when the decision was made that you had to scrap three penny, um, how did you approach that to the staff, you know, artistic and uh, technical? Yeah, well, I, I made a whole lot of phone calls mm-hmm. and, uh, and emailed and, and contacted everyone and said, look, you know, we will, we're going to try to do it next year. I really want to do this show. We've got the, these great concepts for it. We've got these great actors for it. Uh, I really want to do it. But we just financially cannot do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, it, it was it was heartbreaking first because it was humiliating. But it was heartbreaking because actors had put their and tax had put their trust in in my company to have a job. Right. And luckily, we were able to. We figured this out far enough in advance that uh, the chances were slim that we cost anybody any jobs. Uh, that that they didn't lose other projects going forward. Right. Okay. Right, and that was you know we we tried to, to make that decision as quickly and as early as possible. Mm-hmm. But. Um, I, I just, I felt horrible. Right. And then we went and um, we said, okay, so what can we do? And uh, and I think really that, that was one of the beginnings of the end uh, for our term at, at the Broward Center uh, was this, this huge stumble. Right. And you had a lot of folks, that, I'm sure, in the theater community, none of which ever said it to my face, but I'm sure that you had a lot of people in the theater community who looked at, at this and, and the shows right afterwards and were like, they're, they're not coming back from this. Rubbing their and, hands. Uh, yeah, well, you know, it, it's also, it was a, a, it was a good assumption to make. Mm-hmm. Because, uh, you know, we, we went and we put up uh, bed and sofa which again was radically different than anything anybody had ever seen. Mm-hmm. Uh, and most of the people who did come to see it were like, what is this? Mm. And were, were sort of nonplussed by it. Um, we did a, an original version of Medea, uh, set in modern day called uh, The Violet Hour, which again had sort of a, a weird, uh, I, uh, it was a lot of fun to do. Uh, and I thought that we did an excellent job with it. Uh, but you also, you had a lot of folks that were like, I don't quite get, I'm not, and by that point we were like, okay, this is not going to last long. We have to, to sort of regroup. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we, you know, we finished off that year at the Broward Center um, and began moving ourselves 
repositioning ourselves to, to I, I don't want to say to make a comeback, but to, to reorganize. Of course, of uh, course. Uh, that part of that reorganization ended up with me firing our board. Uh, and not really firing our board. I mean, that, that I, I don't have the power to fire our board, but to demand that they begin adhering to our bylaws, which say, this is what you will do. Speaking, this is your responsibility. Right. Speaking of which, um, just to uh, reiterate again, this is a re-recording. So a lot of the things that we spoke about before, uh, now we're just kind of bouncing around from place to place. So just um, bear with me for a moment. But um, we spoke about board of directors. And we spoke about some of the duties of what a board of directors um, do. And of course, you were in that moment where, of course, you had to reorganize your board after that, after that, uh, right. after that situation with um, from going from three penny to bed and sofa. So now you have a stronger board of directors than you did mm -hmm. before. But um, tell me about the puzzling situation in reference to uh, prospective candidacy when you're oh okay I know which one you're talking about yeah okay so we've been looking to expand the board uh, I would like for us to add uh, three more board members uh, I think any more than that it will become unwieldy so I, I've gone out and uh, we put uh, for lack of a better term ads job ads job positions uh, through social media and through LinkedIn and and uh, Boardnet USA, uh, looking for new board members. And I had uh, uh, several interviews, uh, and there was this one gentleman uh, who we interviewed, and it was, it was fantastic. He was a former marketing director at a high-end hotel, former marketing director of an entertainment venue, uh, runs his own marketing firm now, uh, very interested in theater, very interested in performance, and it at the end of our conversation, uh, and we sat there for like an hour and a half, uh, I was like, this is fantastic. This is, uh, I, I really do want this guy on the board. I went and I spoke with the rest of the board. They said, yes, go ahead, offer him. Uh, they took their vote, offer him the position. So I contacted the gentleman and I, I said, congratulations, you're on the board. Here's all the information that you need. I'm so looking forward to, to working with you. And he emailed me back and he said, oh, that's fantastic. Uh, so just let me know what the rate of compensation is and how many hours you'll be expecting of me. And, and I said, compensation? Uh, because nonprofit, for those of your audience who don't know, nonprofit boards aren't compensated. In turn, they themselves help to generate revenue through donations and, and through fundraising for the nonprofit. That's part of their job. A lot of for-profit boards are compensated, and some very large nonprofit boards are compensated. But for the most part, nonprofit boards are not compensated. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so I, I responded to the gentleman. I was like, um, "You don't get compensation. Uh, the IRS frowns upon it. The National Council of Nonprofits says absolutely not. And I really hope this is not." Uh, 
a deal breaker because I, I would really love to have you working with us. And he emailed me back and he said, well, unfortunately, it is a deal breaker. Uh, I thought that this was a paid position. And, uh, and you know, if you ever want to use my, my marketing company, just let me know. And, uh, and I'll we'll put together some rates for you. So that was the end of that. And <laughs> from hmm. that point on, I... Uh, Everyone that I interviewed, I made absolutely sure that they understood this was a volunteer-only position, that there was no compensation involved. But, uh, but even after that, I thought I started thinking, well, am I wrong? Right. Am I actually the, the one who's in the wrong here? And so I, I, I went through social media, I reached out to a bunch of different producers and, and said, do you pay your board members? Is this something that I should have been doing all these years and just haven't been? And, uh, and the, the answer came back to exactly what I thought it was. They, you, no, you don't pay your board members. Hmm. That's just not a thing. Right, right. And it goes back to um, what we're, this uh, type of theme that we're going with, which is transparency, where, yeah. of course, now I always make it clear that if I am doing a funded project, I say that you know there will be some, there will be compensation for you. There will be reciprocity for you. If I am doing something that is volunteer, I will let people know upfront that this is a volunteer project, and then they have the choice of whether to decline or accept. So right. transparency is is extremely extremely key. We're about to uh, kind of uh, get into the, um, how could I say, the, the home stretch here. So okay. I, like I said, I know for those of you who are listening in, this is a re-recording and this is something that we've been, um, in, that we've been kind of bouncing around back and forth. I'm trying to remember the things that we <laughs> we we addressed before uh, this uh, whole uh, learning experience, but I believe uh, one of the things that I said before is that I've seen um, a few of your productions with Utre. Um, just for those who don't know, uh, just quickly, Utre spelled O-U-T is in Tom R-E. What does that mean again? Outrageous, out of the ordinary, uh, a little bit offensive, uh, unexpected. Okay, okay. So, out of the seven, you're going into your seventh season right now, correct? Right. Okay. Mm -hmm. So, out of the six seasons of the shows that I've seen with Outre, uh, we spoke about what was my most favorite, what was my least favorite, and what was an mm -hmm. honorable mention. So, right. do you remember what my what what those were? Let's jog your memory a I little remember, bit. Sure, sure. I remember that your your least favorite uh, was American Idiot, and not for the acting and not for the singing, but because the band was so loud that you could not hear what was going on, and it got to the point where it was an assault on the fences, and you had to leave. Uh, during our mission, and you were not the only one. Uh, that was a, a rough time. Uh, we it took a it took until the second weekend to convince the musical director that yes, the band was too loud. 
She would not listen to the director. She would not listen to me. Uh, she decided that the band was perfectly fine the way that it was, uh, and it wasn't. Mm-hmm. Uh, what it took was a a, a theater critic, uh, Christine Dolan, uh, had told us, uh, I, I can't review this, you don't want me to review this, because it was so loud that, that I couldn't hear what was going on. And it, it, once I told the music director that, then, uh, then she began pulling the, the band back. Uh, so that was your, your least favorite. Uh, your most favorite was Mr. Marmalade, which we did our second, second, yeah, second season, mm-hmm. uh, with the, the, uh, lovely and talented, uh, Laura Rushala. Who is no longer um, with us? May she rest in peace. Uh, that that particular show was so highly offensive, <laughs> uh, <laughs> but it had such charm to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, the The show itself is about a six year old little girl uh, in a single parent home, wealthy, not not poor, but wealthy. The but the mom is uh, like a high-powered ad executive or something like that, and she's never home. And so the child has been raised by television. And the, the little girl has an imaginary friend named Mr. Marmalade, and Mr. Marmalade is a cocaine addict who beats his personal assistant and has a penchant for porn and very <laughs> large dildos. And it's, again, it, it's, we, <laughs> I had people walking out of that show but in a good way yeah they were uh, i had a uh, during intermission uh at one performance i had these two women accost me in the, the lobby uh telling me how horrible it was that i was doing this and i should be ashamed of myself and, and on and on and on and it's like you this is going entirely over your heads isn't it because the entire point of the play is what we always talk about young people being raised by television. Well, let's take that to its logical, logical extreme. If children were truly reflecting everything that they saw on television, what would that be like? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's what we have in Mr. Marmalade. Right. Uh, this cocaine addict with porn and, and domestic abuse and, and all these other things. So uh, it was a commentary on not just our, on our our penchant to use technology as babysitters, but also uh, the fact that it's not nearly as bad as we claim it to be, as, as we self-righteously proclaim it. Yes. But I gotta say, I do not remember the honorable mention. I do not. The honorable mention was Reservoir Dolls, which yeah, was a takeoff to... of the cult movie by Quentin Tarantino Reservoir Dogs. So the reason why I use it as honorable mention is because you had this ensemble and you had one particular linchpin of this uh, ensemble. Even though everyone around the ensemble had their strengths and their weaknesses, but when you had this linchpin, it made the scenes be greater and or it, it kind of upped the stakes, it kind of up the up up the up the scenes a bit, and you had Elizabeth 
Price as your linchpin. So every time that oh, she yeah. was in a scene, um, she made the other actors as well get to her level. And um, I admire her for that, for being a team player like that. So it really... Oh, yeah, she's wonderful to work with. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So that was my honorable mention. Now, I remember we were also speaking about, well, it wasn't necessarily your most favorite and or your least favorite in reference to artistic work, but it was more like what show was your, I want to say, accomplishment that you would never have to do over again. And then there was your show where um, if you had to do it over again in the right settings, you would. And I know you mentioned Tommy, the the yeah. rock opera by the Who. And of right. course, that right. was, uh, you know, at a venue that just did not have the resources that you wanted. And you had... Right. right. Well, I mean, the, the show itself, um, I would love to maybe one day try it again. Mm -hmm. uh, but there were so many things that went wrong during that production. Uh, so many things behind the scenes, so many things dealing with the show, uh, people in jobs and in roles that they shouldn't have been in. Uh, it was... And it, it upset me greatly because there were people who I admired who were working on that show that because of that show, either I stopped admiring them. Uh, there were more than one that, that I, I looked at. And I went, really, is this how you behave when we've got a stressful situation? All right, that that's good to know. So you basically saw um, them in another uh light uh but yeah. it was a bad yeah. light yeah and then there were others that again i i respected but i uh there were a couple that i respected that i had not yet worked with and i i and i'm like please this is not the way that things normally are i promise you this is not the way that things normally are mm -hmm. uh and, and so the as a whole the experience was awful it was the worst directing experience uh i've ever had mm -hmm. and i'm sure that for some of the actors it was the worst acting experience they'd ever had and for some of the techs it was the worst tech experience they'd ever had it was just it was a bad experience all the way around right um it, it caused me to seriously question um, whether or not I ever wanted to do another musical. Mm. Mm. But eventually, you did. <laughs> I did. You did. You did. I did. You did. Which is one of my, my favorite musicals. Uh, actually, probably one of the, probably the, my most favorite play that we have put on, and that is Hedwig and the Angry Inch. Okay. Uh, our last production. Mm -hmm. uh, it was a soul-affirming experience. Mm -hmm. The actors themselves were 
so professional and so giving and so dedicated and driven and committed to their task and committed to their art. Uh, all of the tech came together uh, with the exception of one. The, the tech was on point, uh, the lights, the sound, uh, everything was where it needed to be. The set was gorgeous. Mm-hmm. And I, I really, the team that we had working on it, uh, from Noel Berry as our stage manager uh, and Chris Mitchell as our ASM backstage, uh, just everything about it uh, came together well. We created a beautiful work of art and we had a tremendous amount of fun doing it. Mm-hmm. Hmm. So now that we got that out of the way, I'm just trying to think because there was a couple of other things that we spoke about before that um, that I'm, you know, like I'm saying, I'm I'm drawing a blank in reference to yeah. what we what we did, what we. What I we... am too, but you know, I I think that we've got uh, we've we hit on a bunch of stuff that we did talk about. We've hit on a bunch of stuff that we didn't talk about last time. So right, you know, right, right. Free ranging. Let's talk about everything dealing with theater. Yes, yes, yes. Okay. Um, just to close. Uh, there was uh, one thing that uh, we uh, did speak about, and uh, I believe we did have this in our closing, is that from when you started as an actor here in the South Florida market to uh, being a producer in the South Florida market, what do you see that has improved And what do we need to do as a market in order to be aligned with the other regional markets, especially the markets that are giving a living wage to artists, to technical staff, like a Chicago, like a Minneapolis? Mm -hmm. I think that if we're talking about in terms of wages, um, a lot of it is going to have to come from sources other than the box office. Uh, Art has always been supported by the public, uh, whether we're or supported by the the governmental structures, whether we're talking about the Renaissance or we're talking about ancient Rome or ancient Greece. This is a community supports its artists through the easiest vehicle, which tends to be governmental support because everybody benefits from it. And we, if we want our state and our region to be known for its art, to be known for its culture, we have to elect those leaders who will devote public attention and public funds to it. Mm-hmm. Without that kind of support, if we're just attempting to, to exist off of ticket sales, that's never going to happen. It can't happen because the, the cost of producing would make the cost of the tickets prohibitive. Okay. I think that when we're talking about us as a community, uh, what can we do uh, as a theater community to, uh, to get to that place 
is don't be an asshole. <laughs> I mean, that's really what it comes down to. Mm-hmm. Don't be an asshole. Everybody who is in this business does it because there is something inside their soul that demands that they do it. Okay. Everyone who is in this, whether you like them or not, and God knows there are enough people in the theater community that I don't like and who don't like me, but they're still fellow artists. Right. And you have to acknowledge that. You have to respect that. When we stop respecting each other as artists, when we start looking upon each other, not as colleagues, but as competitors, when we start ranking ourselves, Mm -hmm. when we start trying to have a pecking order, that's when the art goes by the wayside. That's when it becomes empty and devoid of what actually gives it meaning. Okay. And on that note, Sky, I'd like to thank you again for taking the time out of your schedule uh, to, um, you know, do this re-recording and uh, sure, helping out sure. a helping out a young podcaster uh, get his wings. <laughs> I appreciate your patience. So, uh, just a, a couple of things: Utre Theater Company, and that is Utre Theater R E Company. Uh, you will be presenting your second season at the Pompano yep. Beach Cultural Center. Yes, indeed. Um, just quickly, um, just for those who of, who don't know, um, what does the Pompano Beach Cultural Center look like? How many seats is it? Um, you know, it's how state of the yard is it? Large, it's a very new complex. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was just finished in May of 2017, so it's, it's less than 18 months old. Um, the theater itself uh, is has retractable seating. Uh, it can, at its full extent, it can seat up to just about 400. Uh, they've got an art gallery. Uh, the building itself is, is absolutely stunning. Uh, there's a library attached to it as well. Uh, it is. Uh, it's a very, very nice to perform it. Great, great. And I know you're right now in the midst of um, fundraising for uh, for next season. So you have a couple of recurring fundraisers that you do. Mm -hmm. Uh, One of them is a cabaret uh, that uh, that you've done twice already. And you also have this thing called Drunk Shakespeare. So uh, explain, explain to the folks in reference uh, to Drunk Shakespeare and what that's all about. All right. Well, this is <laughs> it's a fun night. Um, this, this year it'll be on August 25th. Uh, it's a Saturday night. We hold it at the Irishman pub up in Boca Raton. Uh, we get eight Shakespearean actors, uh, and we have them begin performing uh, works of Shakespeare monologues, scenes, speeches, sonnets, and we get them increasingly drunker and drunker throughout the night. Uh, And it's sort of a a race to see who is still going to be standing 
uh, at the, the end of the evening. And it is. It's, it's just fun to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Watching the, the boozy bard and, and Sloth Shakespeare is just... Um, it, it's become one of our favorite fundraisers. Um, and we're hoping to... Uh, continue doing it once a year, maybe twice a year. Uh, we've actually just had an invitation to come down and start doing it down in Key West. And I was like, I don't know if we can go that far. Uh, but the, this woman reached out to us uh, first through social media and then emailing us and is, is trying to set up so we can take the show on the road uh, mm. down to Key West, which I think would be a lot of fun. I'm sure. I'm sure. I'm definitely sure. So once again, thank you so much for uh, taking the time out to speak with us. Uh, if you'd like to learn more about Outre Theater Company, you can go to their website, which is Outre, O-U, T as in Tom, R-E as in Edward, theatercompany.com. They're also on Facebook as well as Instagram under Outre Theater. Um I apologize. I know that we're trying to wrap this up, but the funny thing is that um, I noted I knew that uh, a while ago you posted a video on having people try to pronounce outre. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, it is outre, like I said, O U T R E. So it's not outre; it's outre. And I figure that if you can pronounce Kardashian, you can pronounce Outre. Oh, thank you. That's fantastic. I love that. <laughs> so uh, this was a re-recording of episode five for the uh, Kevin Johnson program. You will find us on SoundCloud as well as Anchor.fm. We are now also on Google Play as well as uh, YouTube. Uh, we'll post on there pretty soon. And once again, thank you so much, Sky, for, um, for, for speaking with us. And hopefully you, we'll Kevin. be able to have some uh, future discourse somewhere well, down the line. So uh, take care and uh, I appreciate everyone uh, listening and we will see you at the next episode.